This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This is a podcast hosted by Wakato Environment Centre or Go Eco. We are a voice for the Taio environment, a centre for aqua learning and a catalyst for change. Hipuna Kōrero shares the aspirations and mahi of our team and community as we walk towards a vision of healthy environments and thriving communities. No Tera Wiki, last week we were joined by Andrew Thomas, Biodiversity Officer with the Wakato Regional Council. We discussed how predator control, that's trapping rats, stoats and possums, in selected bush around the city have increased the numbers of tui uh, 19-fold since as of 2016. The project started in 2004. We can grow the impact of that project by planting a tree or backyard trapping which gives native birds and bats safe corridors to travel from their nest to food sources. You can Fokorongo listen to that podcast from freefm.org.nz or from your favourite podcast platform. Search for Hipuna Kōrero. You'll also find our podcast in a tab at the top of our Facebook page which is Go Eco Wakato. Aotearoa Wiki. In 2019, the second largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions was transport at 17.8%. Here in Kirikiriroa, or Hamilton, it was calculated to be over 60% of our emissions. But transport isn't just about facilitating the as fast as possible movement of vehicles on state highways and connecting a golden triangle. Today we'll be joined by Kitty Crossland, a Pākehā queer femme with a passion for making cities better places for everyone to live. Kitty graduated with a Bachelor of Environmental Planning from the University of Wakato last year, works as a sustainable transport planner at Emma Cagney and is on the board of Go Eco. Kia ora, Kitty. Thanks for making time for us today. Kia ora. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for an awesome intro. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I want to start by asking you, and I didn't prepare you for this one, but what do you, what do you think makes a city a great place to live? Um, well, I'm a bit biased as a transport planner. I think that transport is really what underpins it. Um, so having everything you need available and easy to access um, in a short amount of time and it's not too expensive to get there, that's what makes it really good, being able to get your house needs um, or your kai and like being able to meet your friends and get to, uh, get to work, that's what makes the city really great. I might come back to the kai one if we have a bit of time uh, a little bit later on uh, in the podcast. But what led you to study environmental planning and following on from that uh, to a role of a transport planner? Um, ever since I was little, I've always been interested in the environment. Like I grew up just outside of Whangaroa, Raglan, um, on this, the side of some beautiful native bush. And um, I was really interested in how humans had impacted on the environment and how the environment supports people. And I wanted to do some kind of career that facilitated that relationship. Um, and that led to studying environmental planning. And from there, I kind of got into transport by accident, to be honest. Um, I graduated last year, as you said, um, right in the middle of COVID. So it was quite hard to get a job. 
Um, and I ended up finding this internship with Emma Cagney. Didn't really know what they did. Didn't really know what transport planning really was. Um, but after the internship, I was like, wow, this is like this is what I was meant to do. This is so interesting. Um, and I'm like so fortunate that all like all the jobs I applied for I didn't get because this is the perfect one for me because it's all about making people's lives better and easier, but also reducing the carbon emissions that come with our transport system. So really quite fortunate then. Um, so when you uh, took on uh, the internship there, what did they have you doing or what work were you doing? Um, my biggest project, which I'm still working on now, um, we're just about to finish it, um, is a big research project into the transport experiences of disabled people. So we're, it's basically like a stock take. We're looking at every single mode of transport, so driving, walking, catching the bus, using taxis, um, any, any kind of way of getting around you can think of. Um, we've been interviewing um, and doing focus groups with disabled people um, with a broad range of different identities and impairments um, and different, different ways of getting around the different needs and seeing, seeing what barriers are in the transport system and what we can do about them. So part of that research, um, which we started over my summer internship, was also talking to the transport professionals, like the taxi drivers and the regional councils, um, to find out what we can do to make, make transport better. And what are the observations so far? Uh, it's not really surprising that transport isn't very accessible to disabled people. Um, we've found that um, there's a lot of barriers um, like systemic in all different parts of the transport system. So it's not just the one bus driver who won't um, put down the ramp at the bus. It goes all the way um, back to the way the way we plan things and the way our transport system is all set up. Um, it's it's so fragmented that it makes it really hard to have a complete smooth journey from start to finish with no um, like problems along the way because it's it's just not not set up to be accessible, so we're not surprised that it isn't. So when you say it's not set up to be accessible, who is it set up for? Um, we kind of have this idea in my Cagney that the transport system works really well for one group, and that is relatively wealthy uh, parking men who work a nine-to-five job. So most of the transport system focuses on getting commuters to work at peak times of the day. So it's people coming from the suburbs into town. If that's the kind of trip you're making, you've got your car that you can drive, um, you've got your bus you can catch because that's the way most routes go. And then um, Pākehā men tend to feel more safe in different areas. Um, so they're less likely to be targeted um, with harassment on public transport or when they're walking around. Um, so that's who it works really well for. And then everybody else, um, there's different things which just all add up to make transport more difficult. And this probably leads a little bit into uh, the next question I had for you, but how much of that is a result of transport planners, I guess traditionally and stereotypically, being a, a Pākehā male, able-bodied Pākehā male at that? Yeah, I think that's, that's got a big, a, big, that's a big factor in um, how we see transport planning playing out at the moment, because if we only have one type of person in transport planning, um, it kind of, it, it's not surprising that those trips are well catered for because if all of the transport planners are men and they're not the ones who have to worry about taking their kids to school, then it's not forefront of their mind when they're planning. Um, and what we've seen 
in like the history of transport is that we tend to use models to predict and provide the types of trips that will be produced by a development or the types of trips people want to take. Um, and it's less about uh, why are people making trips, where are they going, who's with them, how are they getting there, what else do they need to do with their day. Mm. Your bio mentions you identify as a queer femme. So uh, what are some of the ways you can bring that intersectionality into transport planning? Uh, well, I guess it's the same as anybody. Like I come with my own experiences and my own biases and I know what makes me feel safe on a transport system. Um, and so I kind of just want to be one voice among many who um, is just adding that like diversity of thought and experience to the way we plan transport. Um, so I've been really fortunate at MI Cagney that um, my employers love that and are super supportive of that and always listen to what I have to say and then like advocate for the things that I suggest, um, which is really cool. So being a voice um, or putting your um, own lived experiences forward in the work that you do is one thing. How do you broaden that to be inclusive of the experiences that you personally don't uh, live with? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I think like having being like a member of one marginalised group kind of helps you to understand that everybody else probably thinks differently to you. So um, what I always try and do is say, like, whose voice isn't in the room? Who do we need to be talking to? Um, because I'm just really cognizant of the fact that we're all different and um, different aspects of our lives mean that we have different transport needs, different things that make us feel safe. So um, my number one thing is always talking to the people who we're planning for and including them in the process so that we can we can listen to as many people as possible because by doing that, then we'll be able to plan for as many people as possible as well. Mm, I really like that. Look around the room who is not there. And it's a, it's a yeah. pretty good sign of where you need to go to make sure that we are catering for, for more of us. So I'd like to go a little bit more detail into some research, a report that you've done, Sexuality in the City, Planning for Queerer public spaces. Could you talk to us about how this came to be and um, and what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, so that piece, which was published by Planning Quarterly earlier in the year, um, I actually originally wrote it as an essay when I was at university and um, it was, it kind of came out of like me seeing certain statistics always repeated, like women feel this way in public space compared to men and like that's it but we it's pretty common knowledge and like I think a lot more people agree nowadays that there's more than just two genders and I just never really see that reflected in statistics like our trans whānau and our gender non-conforming whānau are never really represented in statistics about gender safety in public spaces and if they are it's kind of like an afterthought at the end and everyone just assumes that gender non-conforming and trans people and people of all other genders apart from male and female, they just assume that all those genders feel the same way as women, which I just don't think is true, um, but nobody's ever looked into it. So that's kind of like my passion project is kind of raising awareness for the fact that people who aren't women don't feel the same way as women just because we're also marginalised. Um, so I wanted to like kind of look into some of the, those assumptions and just get the conversation going because... Like, we need to be having this conversation because um, we've seen it in, like, the younger generations feel so much more confident identifying as who they truly are. So it's only be going to become 
more and more important um, as all these kids grow up that they can feel safe in the public realm and when they come out of their little social media bubbles and go out into the real world (laughs) they need to feel safe. Yeah so in what ways do you find that the experiences of people um, differ from uh, sorry queer people have differ from you know the the I guess the the male female uh, representation that we've uh, had the planning done through. I mean, what were the differences that you found in their experiences in those spaces? Right. Um, so mine, it was just like kind of a literature review. I didn't um, get out to talk to anybody yet, but that's that's in the in the long term plan. Um, but one of the biggest assumptions I really want to challenge. Um, are the principles of crime prevention through environmental design, which were kind of made famous by Ooh, Jane sorry, Jacobs. Sorry, we'll get you to slow down there. What was that again? Sorry. Oh, crime prevention through environmental design. Okay. Um, also known as SIPTED, because um, planners love acronyms. Um, <laughs> so they're basically principles, design principles, that kind of have always been assumed to make places safe for everyone. Um, and... They're applied universally, but there's actually not a lot of concrete evidence um, that they're universally true. Um, And one of them, one of the principles is eyes on the street. So if you design a place so that there's lots of people like watching a a place, there's passive surveillance and less crime will happen, which it makes sense. And I think in some cases it's true, but for a lot of people who are marginalized, like queer people, trans people, um, people of color, those eyes on the street can be like kind of aggressive so um if you um if you're at risk of like i guess we can call them karens like people who come up to you and harass you and say you shouldn't be there um or like question you having all of those eyes on the street can be quite intimidating Mm. so i think while passive surveillance in general is quite good we can't ignore people who don't feel safe having lots of people watching them um so one thing i mentioned um in that piece is having little, I call them cosy corners, where you can sit and you can look out into a public space, but you can't be seen um, from all angles. Um, so you don't need to be scared that someone's going to come up behind you and you'll be a victim of a hate crime. Um, you kind of can look out, um, but not as many people, like you can only be seen by people who you can see, which um, I think will help to make people feel a lot safer in public spaces, like that I have to be constantly on guard. What are some of the other principles apart from eyes on the street? Um, there's, oh, putting me on the spot. Um, there's some that talk about the um, keeping a place clean and tidy. So when there's a lot of graffiti around and rubbish, um, that kind of encourages more crime because people mm-hmm. feel like if the space isn't taken care of, then they're not going to be um, noticed if they're committing a crime um, or. Other, other ones are about having good lighting and that helps people to feel safe and like, you know, the saying like bad things don't happen in the dark. So if a space is well lit, people feel safe. Um, and other ones are about having clear lines of sight. So um, if you're walking at night, you want to be able to see all the way down an alley to know that nobody's not um, waiting and hiding their feet, like waiting for you. Um, so a lot of them I think are really sound, but I think they still need to be tested. But the main one that I... I really challenge is that eyes on the street. Yes, interesting. And so, uh, I mean, this, again, this, sorry, this might be putting you on the spot again. Are there any really good examples here in Kirikiriro for that? 
Yes, um, I actually put a little picture of the benches in Garden Place um, in the article. Uh, so I think those benches are really cool. Um, they're the ones right outside the council buildings. They've got big concrete planters on three sides, which are quite high, um, and they're all like planted up. So from three sides, like beside you and behind you, nobody can really sneak up on you, and you can look out onto the square, but you're kind of out of line the sight line of the people who are walking through Garden Place, so you can just sit and watch and be out in the public, but um, you're not as noticeable and, um, yeah, people can't sneak up behind you. Oh, so so we take that as a good example. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good so example. A bad example. <laughs> I heard the City Council building and I assumed it was a bad design. <laughs> okay, all the no, that's an actually, actually good one. <laughs> so is it fair to say you have a real interest in an urban design as well? as well as the transport? Yeah, it's something I'm getting more and more into, mostly because I have like a lot of criticisms for it. But um, I think part of what makes the city great is like it looking nice and being easy to move around and um, the, the design can really help facilitate that. Mm. And an, an example that uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with was innovating streets. So what could we learn from that, from a, a planning perspective? an interesting like just a whole social experiment like there were so many different things that came out of that Uh, but one thing I think was really important is the way that we measured who was on the street and using that space and so typically if we do a project there's like a tick box male female who's the pedestrian on on the street Um, and I was part of designing the um, like the questionnaire for the people who are interviewed on the street and I said it shouldn't be a tick tick box male female it should be an open field so we asked people like what's your gender and it was really cool to see people so excited to be asked in that way like um, I think we assume that gender non-conforming and trans people are a really small part of the population but when you're actually out on the street talking to people like they're there and the cool thing about that project was that um, it really showed it kind of just proved that these people like we're here, we're out on the street, um, same as everybody else, and we we want to have a cool urban environment as well. Mm. And, and you've seen us by asking us uh, to yeah. how we identify ourselves, and that's that's incredible as well. And a lot of what you've said today is um, about taking away or challenging some of the assumptions that we make. Um, and that's really cool to hear that that's going through uh, transport planning, an area that I personally probably didn't think that there'd be a lot of that challenging of assumptions and, and how we do things. So it's incredible to hear that that is happening. Yeah, or it's at kind least of like pl- an uphill battle, but yeah. <laughs> we're getting there. But it, is get, but it is getting there. And so do you think there has been a, a big shift recently in, how we, in removing some of the assumptions that we've made in our planning? Um, I feel like I'm in a bit of a bubble at MR Cagney because it's kind of everybody's thing that they challenge, they just challenge the status quo. And so I think we're kind of seeing the start of it. Um, we've, we've in like in the 70s, this all happened for women and women were considered as an interest group by planners in general. And I think that this is kind of, this is kind of our time. Like for queer people, we should be considered an interest group because we're in the public space. Um, so I'm hoping that it's kind of starting now and that we'll just see more and more of it. But awesome. at the moment, it's still pretty little. I'm just loud by myself. So if there are <laughs> any other queer planners out there, just um, hit me up. <laughs> it's 
it sounds cool and it sounds amazing that you're in a workplace that can that can uh, facilitate um, you to do that work as well um, yeah. kind of moving a little bit though uh, the climate crisis is our biggest threat to humanity as you know <laughs> so uh, taking and creating opportunities to change our transport system are crucial to staying within that 1.5 degree warming so what do you think councils and the government should be doing to prioritise for climate action or what's on your wish list um, it's like quite a long wish list but I'll focus on like three, three things um, so the first one is mode shift has to be like the central central to any action we take we can't just keep driving cars even if they're electric because there's climate emissions associated with making electric cars and building the roads for the electric cars and maintaining them um so we have to look to lower carbon modes like walking cycling um busing um public transport because we we know that the cars are a large part of the problem so shifting to a different kind of car that's that's not radical and it's not going to get the job done um, and so in order to do that that's kind of like number two on the wish list is um, investing in safe infrastructure starting today with stuff like innovating streets just pop up cycleways um, pop up little um, we call them like snips and um, so if you put a snip halfway through a city centre road it's going to reduce through traffic because only people going into the city centre are going there rather than, like in Hamilton, we get a lot of through traffic mm-hmm. right down Victoria Street. And um, so, yeah, popping up quick fixes while we do like the long-term big changes would be second on my wish list. Um, and then third is just to try and stop treating cars as the default. Like at the moment, you do a resource consent application and you have to talk about the vehicle, the vehicle trips that will be generated. And then... If there's going to be lots of vehicle trips, you have to provide parking and you have to um, upgrade the road around your development. But I just think stop treating cars as the default. Like we ne- we need to realise that cars, they're not the most important thing in the world and people get around other ways and they should get around other ways. Uh, and one of my colleagues, uh, Lewis, has this great thing about um, reducing vehicle kilometres travelled as an explicit goal for the government. Um, so that means... A goal is to reduce how far everybody drives um, and the way to do that is to give them other options. So yeah, that's my, my big three things, but there's lots more on the list. <laughs> I read there, but they sound extremely logical. Um, yeah, and, and I like what you're saying about we need radical change. We can't just keep tinkering with the same assumptions that we've started this mess with. We actually need to shift away from that and that's, um, yeah. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been awesome being able to speak with you and learning more about what your work um, with um, MR Cagney as a transport planner. Where can we go to read a bit more? Where would you, when people say, oh, this is super interesting to me, um, I didn't know there were other people who thought like this, where do you send them to read more and find out more? Um, if people are interested in the queer planning kind of stuff, I've got quite a few articles up on LinkedIn just with my hot takes. Um, so that's a good starting point. And then the MR Cagney LinkedIn has lots of hot takes from my colleagues about um, more transport-focused things. And so there's lots of great resources there um, about like public transport, mode shift. I think there was one published today about vehicle kilometres travelled. So, yeah, Kitty Crossland on LinkedIn or MR Cagney on LinkedIn um, and just look in our blog posts.
So your hot takes from transport planners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, let us know a little bit about your song request for today. Um, I've requested Love Line by Zolita, which is um, she's kind of like a quirky, queer femme artist, identifies as a witch, which I just think is cool. Um, and so the song is kind of like a a love song about this psychic that she meets asking about her love life and then the psychic becomes her love interest, which I just think is like really funny um, so I wanted to hear it on the radio <laughs> <laughs> awesome and, and now you can uh, thank you so much for joining us today Namahi thanks so much Kelly Kakite saw a psychic about a psychic asked about her twice waved her fingers said don't linger you're about to have a really good night oh and now we're making out in a bar show hosted by Go Eco Wakato. Um, we just heard from Kitty Crossland, a transport planner and also on the board of Go Eco. Um, hugely interesting uh, to me and I hope for you as well. Uh, Go Eco Wakato Environment Centre, a not-for-profit environment hub based at 188 Commerce Street in Frankton, Hamilton. Uh, you can find our website at goeco.org.nz, uh, but we would love to see you in person or on social media, Go Eco Wakato. Join us again next week for a new episode, but follow us on the, uh, follow or subscribe to Hipuna Korero on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. Ke pai tora i homa. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. 
Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.